Lindsay works in her basement both day and night. On the dark history of polygamy, she sheds needed light. Let's at least help her pay for pens and Diet Coke. Cause staring polygamy in the face ain't no joke. Just ask Emma. A new poem by Carolyn Pearson. She alone is responsible for its stupidity, but she means every word. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage or polygamy as it's commonly known. Today, we're going to venture into our section of Mormon fundamentalism. And we're going to start with a sort of broad overview, and then we're going to get into each individual sect in the next few weeks. And then, of course, don't worry, we'll return to your normally scheduled Mormon history. We've got some great interviews coming up as well, and it's going to be it's going to be a great time. So buckle up, we're going to learn a lot about practicing fundamentalist Mormons. I want you to picture a calm, warm morning in the red deserts of Arizona. Anyone that's been to the western United States has probably stopped by the southwest United States with the red rock and the red sand and the red dirt. This is sort of the breeding ground for Mormon fundamentalism. Now, of course, in the series, I've talked about how southern Utah was sort of fanatical, right? It was known for its fanaticism. Some say there's something about the landscape that does it, and others say that maybe this is what it means to be a real Mormon people, to go out into the wilderness and sort of live your faith. It was in such a place that the Short Creek Raid in Arizona happened. This raid would shape Mormon fundamentalism completely. And we're going to talk about that, and we're going to kind of go back and forth in time to hopefully contextualize this a little bit. It was a calm, warm morning in the desert of Arizona. The town of Short Creek, Arizona, usually baking in the red dirt next to the picturesque red buttes in the distance, would have been dark and quiet. Crickets had long since quieted, and the night was sleepily crawling towards the day. I want you to picture this in your mind. Picture this quiet desert town. Near dawn, the town would brace themselves when the quiet morning hours were broken by the hum of a distant car engine approaching. Within minutes, the hum would grow louder, and there were more and more and more car engines. An army of Ford couriers and Hudson jets kicked up clouds of dust and descended on this remote little town in Short Creek. 102 Arizona State Police officers and soldiers from the Arizona National Guard entered Short Creek and surrounded the town in what is now known as the Short Creek Raid. And I would, I would encourage you to look on the site. There are some amazing photos of this happening. This would have been in the 19, in 1953. So we're moving forward a little bit, but I want you to get a sense of now these are not Mormon you know, Mormons in, in Arizona riding on the horse and buggy. Now we have cars descending on their town. Mormonism has come so far. 
This community, which was composed mostly of about 400 Mormon fundamentalists, had had already known that this was going to happen. Some thought it was divine revelation, but really they had been tipped off. And even though it was 4 a.m. in the morning, the police show up and find them singing hymns in the schoolhouse while the little kids played outside in the dark morning hours. Pretty soon, the entire community gets taken into custody, with the exception of six people who were found not to be fundamentalist Mormons. Only six. Among those that were taken into custody were 263 children. I want you to imagine this scene. I want you to imagine this, this sort of 1950s. Of course, these people are about 10 and 20 years behind the times. So they're dressed sort of in 1930s garb. And the, all these police show up at this coordinated effort and cart out 263 children. 150 of the children were taken into custody and were not permitted to return to their parents for more than, get this, two years. And, and even worse, some parents never regained custody of their children. It's said that the day before the raid, the police organized into two teams, and they discussed their plans. There was an accompanying photographer, who I have posted some of his photos online, and there was a reporter, Frank Pearson, who wrote in his notes that he sent back to Life magazine's editors in New York. He would say, quote, Leaving from points as far as 350 miles from Short Creek, the groups were to converge on the town at exactly 4 a.m. Sunday. The Attorney General's office prepared 122 indictments for 36 men, 86 women, for insurrection. Officers were equipped with extra John and Jane Doe warrants to provide for the unexpected. For all the cloak and dagger work, there was a leak. As patrol cars roared into the village, three dynamite explosions echoed off the desert cliffs. They were signals to the waiting Short Creekers that police were coming. In the houses, officers found only women and children cowering. The men were assembled in their Sunday best in the schoolyard. The America flag was flying, and they were singing, God bless America. When the Life article came out later, they noted, quote, it was like hunting rabbits with an elephant gun. Now, we know the context of this if we've been following the series. Mormons had been a persecuted people. It was the Mormons against the government. The Mormons against the local government. Mormonism against the world. And the world is Satan. So you can imagine what a sort of end of days this would have felt like. Picture the dynamite echoing off the, the red canyon walls at 4 a.m. on a Sunday morning. So 122 adults are served warrants. The men are arrested and sent to a jail in nearby Kingman. And most of the women were forcibly sent away to Phoenix. And, of course, their children are taken into state custody. Many are shipped off to foster homes. And uh, it becomes this big sort of media snafu. Because, you know, up until this point, fundamentalists practicing polygamists are seen as evil and wicked and odd, right? This is how the, the general national media had portrayed them. There are cartoons of Utah being a skeleton with its, you know, mouth open. But with this raid, t the tide started to turn. Here we have photographers on the scene ready to chronicle it. And 
instead of these sort of wicked, evil men, you know, hoarding over these women, what the pictures were, were children. Little children crying and clinging for their moms. Men openly weeping, dressed sort of in simple farmer garb. This would change the, the general opinion, the general public's opinion of polygamists. They started to see these people as people. The raid was also had an effect on polygamists everywhere. It was seen as sort of a warning. The Allred family, who were living in neighboring Utah, paid attention. Everyone in Utah would have paid attention to this. There was a little girl named Dorothy Allred Solomon, and she's an author who has written several books about growing up in polygamy. And um, she remembers, she remembers being a little girl, already being taught how to keep secrets about her father and her seven mothers. And she remembers this day in her mind, even though she wasn't even there. Arizona Governor John Howard Pyle initially called the raid, quote, a momentous police action against insurrection. And he called Mormon fundamentalists the foulest conspiracy you could possibly imagine. And that, and, and he was famously quoted for calling them white slaves. Of course, like I said, these pictures start coming out and things, things change. One newspaper editorialized, quote, by what stretch of the imagination could the actions of Short Creek children be classified as insurrection? Were those teenagers playing volleyball in a schoolyard inspiring a rebellion? Insurrection? Well, if this is so, an insurrection with diapers and volleyballs, end quote. At that same week, the Korean War Armistice Agreement was signed, and the raid sort of gets plastered across the U.S. media, including in Times, Time Magazine, and Newsweek. So with this stuff going on with the Korean War, this becomes an odious or un-American Rate, right? This gets thrown around. One commentator suggested, quote, this was probably the first time in history that American polygamists had received media coverage that was largely sympathetic. And another one, I think very, um, exaggeratedly states, quote, only American parallel is the federal actions against Native Americans in the 19th century, end quote, which I think that that's, that's quite a stretch, uh, considering, considering the whole genesis of America's relationship with indigenous people. But you can tell that this was momentous for this sort of polygamous change in the tide. Governor Pyle would lose his bid for re-election in 1954 to Democratic candidate Ernest McFarland. Pyle would blame the fallout from the raid as having destroyed his political career. And yet, with all the negative media coverage, there was someone there was one group that applauded it, and that would be the Desert News, owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The news applauds this action and says that fundamentalists, quote, had become, quote, a cancer of sort that is beyond hope of human repair, end quote. Oh, the irony. Oh, the irony of the Desert News just, you know, 30 years after distancing itself. It sort of overcorrects and says, polygamy, these fundamentalists are a cancer and they're beyond human hope and repair. 
When the paper editorialized its support for separating children from the polygamous parents, there was a backlash against the paper and the church by a group of Latter-day Saints, including historian, famous historian Juanita Brooks. She complained that the church was approving of, quote, such a basically cruel and wicked thing as taking of little children from their mother, end quote. And after that, I think the church learned their lesson because the Short Creek Grade was the last time the LDS Church took an active position that had to do with, you know, prosecuting any sort of fundamentalist group. After the raid, the colony at Short Creek eventually began to grow back up again, and it was renamed Colorado City in 1960. Now, anyone that has read the News on Mormon Fundamentalism knows the name Colorado City, right? This is where the famous fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the FLDS Church, resides. And we all know about Warren Jeffs, who in 2000 was placed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list and was arrested in 2007 and 2011 was convicted in Texas on two counts of sexual abuse. So Colorado City is actually formerly Short Creek, Arizona. So that was in 53. Why am I telling you this? Because Short Creek would not only influence the media, but there were some major players that happened to be there. One of them was a leader. The leader of Short Creek at the time of the raid was Joseph Musser. I want to back up a bit to 1892. Picture a breezy day now in June. It's a little colder than it would be in Arizona because now we're going to go up north. We're going to go all the way up to northern Utah, to Logan, Utah. A woman named Rose S. Borquist would step out of the Logan Temple with her new groom. She would become the wife of Joseph White Musser. Rose, young, and happy, would eventually have eight children with Musser. But she would not be in her, ver her marriage for only two years when her husband was called away on a mission. Brian Hales explains it thusly, quote, An inquiry into the relationship between Joseph M Musser and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints reveals a series of changes during which Joseph was transformed from a faithful believer into a severe at times, antagonist. As a son of a prominent priesthood leader, he grew up believing in the truthfulness of the church. In 1892, he was married in the Logan Temple to his first wife and then embarked on a mission to the southern states in 1895. Joseph recounted in his journal that in December of 1899, he and his wife Rose were invited by the president Lorenzo Snow to receive their full temple blessings. Shortly thereafter, Musser claimed that, quote, a messenger came to me, President Snow, from President Snow, stating I had been selected to enter plural marriage and to help keep the principle alive. The manifesto had been issued, and the word had gone out from the bishops and state presidencies that define that a definite stop had been put to the practice. Those assuming to enter the principle would be handled. I was placed in a peculiar situation. God's prophet told me to accept the law and keep it alive. His subordinates said if I did so, they would cut me off from the church. I could not argue with them and divulge the source of my authority, end quote. Okay, so I've talked about conspiracy theories before. This is one of them. This is where we have these roots. Joseph Musser, completely faithful Mormon, claims that a messenger was sent from Lorenzo Snow, who would have been the president of the church then, saying, 
You have a special calling, and your calling is to practice plural marriage. Brian Hales has his doubts about this. He doesn't think that such thing would be likely, but this is what Joseph Musser claims in his autobiography. Let's talk about his faithfulness for a minute. Everybody likes to give their Mormon cred when we're talking in the community. Let me give you Joseph Musser's cred. On June 29, 1892, Musser was called to the 16th Quorum of the Seventy, and two years later, in April of 1895, he served a mission to Alabama, having been set apart by Brigham Young Jr., Heber J. Grant, and John W. Taylor. Now, it's not like this guy isn't connected to people. Brigham Young Jr., if you'll remember, was one of the dudes that took a bunch of people and had a sort of polygamy party in Mexico post-manifesto, right? He goes and, and marries a bunch of people. These are the guys, Heber J. Grant, and, and of course Heber J. Grant would be involved with polygamy, and John W. Taylor. So, these are the guys that set him apart in his mission. On Thanksgiving Day of 1899, in the company of four other couples, Musser and his wife Rose Borquist, who I spoke of earlier, received their second anointing. And he, this is unusual because he was only 27 when this happened, and it was under the direction of Lorenzo Snow. So Lorenzo Snow saw something so special in, in Musser that he gives him his second anointing. Musser was allegedly later told by Apostle Brigham Young Jr. that the president of the church, Joseph S. Smith, had sent him to tell Musser that if he did not enter into plural marriage, he would lose his blessings, meaning, presumably, I'm guessing, the blessings of the second anointing. This sort of, some people would say that this suggests that living plural marriage was prerequisite for getting your second anointing, regardless of you know, previous administration of the ordinance. In 1901, Musser was made president of the 105th Quorum of the Seventy and would later serve as high counselor in Uinta, Wasatch, and Granite Stakes, being sent apart by Joseph F. Smith. That's in 1901. This is important, this little timeline. And then, on February 16, 1903, Patriarch John M. Murdoch ordained Musser to the office of high priest. So he's high priest... He's rubbing shoulders with all these people. He would also be the Duchesne Uinta branch president beginning in 1906. But here's the twist. By 1906, Musser is a polygamist. Little Rose, who came out of the temple in Logan, so happy, that day, several years before, would eventually give her husband into plural marriage. She, too, would be talked into this calling. Musser would write in his journal, quote, May 30th, 1901. At night, had a splendid talk with Rose on the subject of plural marriage. She is fully converted to the principle and says she believes we will have to practice it before long. She is trying to prepare herself for the principle. November 17th, 1901. Upon returning home from the church meeting, my wife and I, Rose, volunteered the information that she was prepared to accept the principle of plural marriage and suggested a young lady as one very well adapted for the condition of life, and requested if consistent with my feelings, I lay my plans accordingly. For this testimony given to my wife, I am truly grateful to the Lord, and it shall be my desire through life, whether living in that principle or not, to live worthy of receiving to myself wives and children according to the will of God. End quote. Joseph would marry his second wife, Mary C. Hill, in March of 1902 and then his third wife in 1907. So 1902, 
who takes, you know, on the principle in 1907, he's got three wives, of course, is moving up in the sort of church structure system. His third wife gets him in trouble. It catches the attention of the Salt Lake Tribune, which announces the marriage on its front page. This would have been a problem because here we have this sort of prominent Mormon man splashed all over the papers saying he's a polygamist. And of course, in 1907, this would have been three years after the Second Manifesto. So the church wasn't just done with polygamy. They were, okay, now we're really done with polygamy. And here is one of their prominent leaders getting married in 1907. So the LDS Church calls him before the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in July of 1909. But this doesn't lead to any disciplinary action. Instead, he gets a calling. He becomes a mission president to India. Now, there's this whole dispute going on in Musser's life, and, and it's important to understand as we sort of break out in these different sects. I've talked about it with Brian Hills. I've talked about it with Mithrin. We've talked about sort of this timeline. According to Musser in 1915, he was given authority to perform plural marriages by, air quotes, an apostle. We don't know the apostle. We do know that he becomes excommunicated finally from the LDS Church by the High Council of the Salt Lake City Base Granite Stake on March 21, 1921. Now, it's interesting because he gets called into the Quorum of the Twelve. They don't do anything. They leave it to the stake president to handle in 1921. Why does he get excommunicated after living the principle for nearly two decades? This time he attempts to take Marion Bringhurst as his fourth wife. The president of the granite stake that excommunicated him was Frank Y. Taylor, son of President John Taylor, who was the LDS church president, remember, from 1877 to 87. And one of his counselors was John M. Cannon. And half of the 12 high counselors had already entered plural marriage after the Manifesto of 1890. Doesn't matter, though. Once the, the Tribune had run the article exposing Musser as the new polygamist, they were forced to publicly excommunicate him. He didn't seem deterred. In May of 1922, Musser marries again, this time to Lucy O. Kemich. It should know, if we go back to Rose, Musser's wife, she apparently claimed initial cooperation. But when the church withdrew its total support of Joseph, so did she. And by 1920, she was decidedly positioned against his polygamist activities. He would record in his journal March 18th, 1922, My wife Rose is not friendly with my other families. She cannot accept plural marriage and antagonizes my efforts to live it. August 21st, 1922, Learned that my wives Rose and Mary have both made statements of late reflecting on my integrity and indicating their utter lack of confidence in me, yet they are straining every effort to get money from me for their support. Their misrepresentations are damaging, too, as it prevented me from doing business with certain people in whose ears the rattle of these women reach. August 5th, 1925, Rose did not want to have Milton, who was the son of wife Ellis, come. She did not want any of Ellis's children in home. That evening when she invited to take dinner there, I told her where my son was not welcome, I did not have to stay. She flew in a Swedish tantrum and, as is the rule, went wild. I gave it up and told her it was the last time I would try to help her. The children were with me and felt very badly, but their mother, actuated by fiendish jealousy, remained adamant. And so it goes. As hard as I have strove and worked, I only get blamed, and my humble request was flatly refused. 
She has at time and again driven me from home, yet I have provided the home the best I could and cared for her, but I give it up. Not in this life will she modify, I fear, but perhaps in eternity she will understand things. She first turned against my wife Mary until I married Alice, and she earnestly enlisted me to marry Alice, but now only is friendly with Mary and deathly against Alice. She complains that Alice has won me away from her. End quote. After years of separation, Rose would obtain a civil divorce. Mary, too, would eventually separate from Joseph. Unfortunately for Joseph Musser, even his beloved wife, Ellis, begins to get sort of disaffected and disenfranchised with the practice of plural marriage. We don't know much about his fourth wife, Lucy Kimmich Musser, because their marriage took place in the 1930s, and uh, that's when things were becoming more and more secretive. You know, those around him, like Lawrence C. Woolley, would characterize Joseph Musser's polygamous family in very positive terms. But we know in 1931, Musser was living alone. This would be seen as some of his detractors as evidence that plural marriage is a farce and that it doesn't work, that one of the great leaders that he spent a great deal of time promoting and the guardian of these keys of these priesthood couldn't even make it work on earth. Joseph, of course, writes... I have been fanatically religious. I think his quote was, I believed intensely in the mission of Joseph Smith, and were it possible to become fanatical in accepting the decrees of the Almighty, I have been fanatically religious. This, Brian Hills says, sums him up. And on May 14, 1929, he is ordained as an apostle in the Council of Friends by Lauren C. Woolley. Now remember, Lauren C. Woolley is the guy that claims that his father... John W. Woolley gets authority from John Taylor directly. The priesthood, remember, was presided over by this council of seven friends, or the priesthood council, and each member of the alleged council of friends held the purported priesthood office of high priest apostle. Musser was not the senior member of the council of friends, but he was the most vocal. Now, there's a lot of interesting angles here. Did Lorenzo Snow tell Musser that he has the authority? and to keep the principle alive on the earth? Or does John W. Woolley have the authority from Taylor, and the Council of the Friends actually has the authority? Or maybe do they both have the authority, and that's why they're building this council? Or is it just that once you get kicked out of the LDS Church, you don't have anywhere to go as a practicing fundamentalist, so you join the Council of Friends? Regardless, he joins this council, and the Council of Friends would sort of start this practice. Uh, in the 1930s and 40s, Musser was responsible for editing the Mormon Fundamentals publication, Truth Magazine, and his sort of dogged promotion of the principle led to him being jailed in May and December of 1945. You know, there were some raids in, you know, 44 and 45, and he is one of them. This sort of elevates him in the status, just like the men of old, just like John Taylor, you know, on the lamb, hiding out for the principal. Now, there's even more controversy. It's said that when they were incarcerated, there was some dissension behind some of the leaders. There was a concessionary document that they were supposed to sign, and some would sign it and some would not. In late December 1949, with the death of John Yates Barlow, who was, you know, part of this council of friends, Musser became the leader of all Mormon fundamentalists. However, in May 1951, he decides to select Rulon C. Allred as an apostle. 
some of the other members of the presiding priesthood council felt they were being bypassed, and others took issue at Musser's sort of condemnation of the practice of underage and arranged marriages that were still going on in Short Creek, Arizona. So this causes a divide. There's these politics at play. And by July 1951, the split deepens. They call Mexican apostle Margarito Batista, and in January 1952, Musser created a new priesthood council, including Owen A. Allred and others, including the apostles he had called. And of course, this brings us to the Short Creek Raid, and he is dealing now with one of the biggest fundamentalist raids in sort of since John Taylor and all of these sort of frontier Utah acts. Now Joseph Musser is over this controversy. Rulon Allred is important because he becomes a leader. Musser is important because he is the leader. This council of friends is important because of all their connections. Barlow is important. We're going to talk about all these names, but again, I keep repeating them and sort of telling these stories in different ways so you can familiarize yourself with this. When Musser dies on March 29, 1954, you know, less than a year after the Short Creek raid, the fundamentalists in Short Creek refused to accept the leadership of his appointed successor, Rulon Allred. And instead, Leroy S. Johnson becomes their leader. This is in Short Creek, but they still have colonies in Mexico. The fundamentalists in Mexico and Salt Lake City remain faithful to Allred. They think that Rulon Allred is the man, and they stick with him. And Everyone in Short Creek wants to go with Leroy S. Johnson. And then there were some that didn't support either, and they become these sort of independent fundamentalist Mormons. Now, I've talked about Musser for a minute, but I want to talk about some of these other guys. Following the death of Woolley in September 1934, and his second elder, J. Leslie Broadbent, who would die six months later, the leadership of this Council of Friends falls to John Y. Barlow. They're the ones that send a bunch of followers to the small ranching town of Short Creek, Arizona to, quote, build a branch of the kingdom of God. So Barlow is responsible for organizing the town, even though Musser would later take it over. Barlow believed that the isolated creek could provide sort of this refuge from those engaging in polygamy, which now would be a felony at, at this time for them. They attempt the sort of communal united trust in 1935, and they call it the UEP, the United Effort Plan, sort of as a way to prepare for the collectivist united order that Joseph Smith had talked about. The UEP was incorporated on November 9, 1942, and by 1944, there was 2,500 members. Heber J. Grant, who is the LDS president of the church, starts to pay attention. He agrees to cooperate with state and federal authorities in the multi-state raid that was supposed to wipe out polygamy, and that would have been in 1944. And basically in the 44 raid, 46 community adults were accused of unlawful cohabitation and similar crimes, and 15 of them received state prison sentences and nine federal prison sentences, with Charles Zitting and David Darger receiving both. This is interesting because Heber J. Grant would have known most, if not all, of these guys directly. He would have interacted with these these people. In fact, he gave callings to some of these people. The 44 Raid, the Short Creek Raid, Musser, Barlow, all these guys, these are the birth of Mormon fundamentalists. They split into two groups, the FLDS, 
staying at Short Creek, and the Apostolic United Brethren, which I'm going to call the AUB, and they relocate to Bluffdale, Utah. This is the beginning of the groups, and I'm really excited to talk about the groups. And of course, I'm going to be talking about the groups from the sort of historical perspective, but I know I have a lot of fundamentalist listeners out there, and if you are listening and you feel like your group is not being represented accurately, you are more than welcome to contact me online to, to send me an email and to send me a representative. I do have some fundamentalists lined up that will tell their sides of the story, but like all these things, like, uh, you know, Mormonism at the time, it was the disaffected who would tell the stories, and... um now that polygamy is being decriminalized, I think it's a lot easier to tell these stories. So we're going to be telling the stories. Um, we are going to talk about some darker aspects of polygamy, and we're also going to give people an opportunity to tell what they like about it. So I thank you for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. We are starting a new site, gearofpolygamy.com, which is almost done. We need some donations for that. We had barely enough donations to cover our server fees, and I thank those who sent those in. But we still, I, uh, I'm not as tech savvy as you'd think, and so I'm raising money to, for people that are, because people should be paid for their work. So thanks for joining us, and we'll tune in in a few days. <laughs>